This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. The Harvard Program on Education Policy and Governance, which I direct, recently released an assessment of student performance at charter schools in 35 states and the District of Columbia. We rank states according to the level of charter school performance in math and reading in fourth and eighth grade on the National Assessment of Educational Progress. That's the test that's often referred to as the nation's report card. The ranking that we produce for charters across the country is for the period between 2009 and 2019, and we adjust for student backgrounds so that comparisons among states are made for similar groups. To the surprise of some, the state of New Hampshire ranked fourth on this test. Colorado and Massachusetts came in second and third, and Alaska came in first. But New Hampshire proved to many that might have been thinking otherwise, that they were in the same ballpark as their neighbor on the southern border. I am pleased that Dr. Frank Edelboot, Commissioner of Education for the state of New Hampshire, has agreed to discuss these findings with me on the Education Exchange. Before serving as commissioner, Frank Edelboot was a member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives, and he served on its finance committee. Before that, he worked in the private sector as a certified public accountant. He operated his own company before selling it off to a firm overseas. And currently, he's serving on the governing board for the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which administers the very test on which charter school students in New Hampshire performed particularly well. I am pleased to have Commissioner Edelblut with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you for joining me, Commissioner. Yes, good afternoon, Paul. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have this conversation. Uh, Commissioner Edelblut, New Hampshire charter students did very well on the National Assessment for Educational Progress. So what do you attribute their success? Yeah, so that's a big question, um, and uh, and I really appreciate the question. I'm going to start really with just leaning in a little bit. I know you mentioned in my bio that I uh, was serving as a member of the National Association National Assessment Governing Board, uh, which oversees NAEP. So I am a fan of the assessment. I do think it's a good instrument in terms of trying to um, determine and assess how students are performing. So. Uh, and I only start there because obviously that is the assessment tool that you kind of relied on in this data set as I look at. Um, as well, I, I'll, I can give you my perspective um, and my thoughts when I first saw these results come out, but um, I'm almost a little bit curious as to you as the researcher, kind of some how, how that kind of weighs in. In New Hampshire, we have a bit of a unique charter school landscape. It's different than many other states. We have 36 charter schools, not all of which we have three of them, I believe, are in process right now in the process of opening up. But uh, so not a ton of charter schools in New Hampshire. All of our charter schools are uh, independent charter schools. Um, all of our charter schools are nonprofit. All of our charter schools are public charter schools that are funded with state funding. Um, and that's something that oftentimes people confuse. They see charter schools and they somehow imagine that they are private, non-public schools, when that's not the case. These are our public schools. And in New Hampshire, we have a unique environment in, and a perspective relative to charters that um, in terms of, of setting them up, we really have embraced wholeheartedly the idea of um, the, the incubator approach, like the experimental approach, like how do we use charters to find new educational opportunities that we can then spread out uh, those best practices really across the entire education landscape. Um, and so when I 
charter school group comes to us and they have an interest in, in starting up, um, we work a lot with them on their mission. Like, what is their purpose? Um, you know, if a charter school were to come to our State Board of Education and say they just want to set up another neighborhood school, it's unlikely that they would get approved. But because we're looking for something different, we already have a neighborhood school. We're looking for something that's a little bit more unique in terms of its mission, in terms of its focus, in terms of its pedagogy and stuff like that. Well, that's sort of interesting from our point of view, because one of the things we looked at was uh, do charter schools have a specific mission? Are they having a, a specific methodology or pedagogy or uh, a group that they want to serve in particular? Or are they just sort of saying, we want to serve anybody and everybody who comes to the door? And it turns out that the more specialized the charter school was, actually the higher the test score performance of the students at that school. So. Uh, perhaps uh, part of your explanation here is that you're looking for charter schools with a specific mission. I think it is. And I, I love the way that you just made that connection. I was not unaware that you guys were looking at that as a as a component of that. But it, but I think it plays into the success of the students. And the reason it plays into the success of the students, um, you know, I'm going to back up one step. Um, you know, when our families have the opportunity to choose an educational setting, uh, you know, human nature is such that when you make a decision for something, you have a, a vested interest in the outcome of how that works, right? And so when individual families say like, you know, I'd like my child to go to this STEM-oriented school or to this arts-based school or to this, you know, project-based school or to this classical liberal arts type of a school, it's because those parents then have made that choice that they have uh, some skin in the game, so to speak, in terms of the success of their children. They also make those choices because they believe that it is an education setting that fits the character and the attributes and the individualism of their particular child, right? And so they're gonna say like, my kid is really interested in computers, so we're gonna pick a STEM school. And so when that student gets into that environment, what you find in the charter schools is in terms of specifying the, the education, is it is centered in a very purposeful way, right? So if you're a STEM kid and you're going to a STEM charter school, you have application of that knowledge that you're learning to something that you have an acute or potentially an acute interest in. So you're just that much more engaged. Yeah, Commissioner, who makes these decisions? Is this done at the state level or is this done at the district level or who's the authorizer for the state of New Hampshire or do you have multiple authorizers? Yep, so we have two pathways. We have the opportunity for a charter school to come through a local authorizer. So our local LEAs, our local school districts are, are permitted to charter charter schools, right? They would issue the charter. Or you can go through the State Board of Education. Interestingly, uh, when the law was first put into place, it was only, you only had the local district as the charter, the authorizer of that charter. Um, we got no schools. So when we opened it up and we had the State Board of Education authorize them, then we began to see more charters uh, come into effect. Well, that's very interesting to me as well, because uh, I, yeah, what I'm hearing is that in practice, it's really the state board or the state agency that's making uh, the decisions as to whether a school will be allowed to open up as a charter school. And when we look nationwide, we find that the places where uh, charter schools are authorized by the state. That is where we see the highest performance. So uh, if a charter school says, I was authorized by a state agency, whether it's a state department or the state board or whatever they call it, then that we find that the students at those schools are at 
performing at a higher level. So it sounds to me like that's a maybe the fact that you can have a consistent statewide policy in, in practice, maybe not on the books, but in practice, that's what you have, helps you to uh, make sure that you can have uh, elevated uh, uh, charter sector. Yeah, I mean, well, and so really just in the few, first few minutes of this conversation, we've identified two of the factors that are likely contributing to the New Hampshire performance on that, uh, you know, in your work that you've done, given the fact that we are mission driven, uh, we are state chartered, uh, you know, in terms of across our charter school network. Um, and so I think you're pointing to a lot of that. How about your funding level? Is, do you have a high funding level? Um, so, you know, just, that's one of those rhetorical questions. Is there anyone <laughs> in education who believes that there's a high funding level? We do fund our charter schools, I believe, well. And I don't know that you can make, um, you know, a lot of direct correlation between funding levels and outcomes. Uh, like, and I don't, I know that that's a separate conversation. Well, we tried in our data set. We tried and we got zero. We could not I mean, find any correlation. There's not a lot of correlation there. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I want to, yeah, so I'm a little bit cautious when that question is posed because, um, you know, like, it, you know, there, you find different schools in different settings who are having success or not success. So. Yeah, no, that was one of the surprises in the data because a lot of people in the charter sector say we need more money. This mm -hmm. is the key. This is yeah. the key to our success. We need more money. But yeah. in fact, we found very little correlation between how much money they were receiving and how effective they were. So it was another sort of a surprise in the data. I mean, I think that that's that I'm surprised that you're surprised because isn't that kind of across the education landscape is that there tends to be not a high degree of correlation between education spending and education outcome. Well, yes, I would say that in, you're absolutely correct. However, I did sort of feel about charter schools. Well, they're in a competitive environment. They've got to attract students. They're going to be spending their money wisely. If they have more resources, they're going to be using them uh, effectively and efficiently. But uh, so in that sense, it was a bit of a surprise for me. I understand. Yeah, that's a, an interesting aspect associated with that. So uh, so where are the charter schools in New Hampshire? Are they in uh, the urban areas or are they spread around the state? They are spread around the state. So um, similar to having a whole different variety, when these or when these charters come to uh, the State Board of Education for approval, you know, we also look at what is around there, right? Like, so the State Board is not going to approve two STEM schools side by side, likely. We want to make sure we spread that out across the state. But we, and, and we've done a pretty good job in terms of having our concentration of charter schools um, mirror, really, the distribution of population. You know, so we have more charter schools in the south part of the state, but that's because we have a higher, you know, population density there. But we've got urban schools, we've got rural schools. Really, they are spread out across the state and available to students. And uh, and how many students are there in the charter sector? You have a, a estimate as to what it is about. Yeah, so time? we have about five thousand six hundred students in our charter, uh, you know, environment right now in our charter network. So not a, a high, a tremendously high number. Um, what's really an interesting thing uh, relative to our charters, particularly in the charter cohorts that you were looking at in that. Um, you know, the, the kind of the middle school and elementary school cohort, as opposed to the secondary, um, almost every one of my charters has a wait list, um, you know, some considerable wait list. Like I have one particular STEM school in mind right now, 
They have 650 students in the school and they have a 500 student wait list. Uh, probably the most diverse school in the state. Um, I have schools that have opened up just recently and uh, are offering, uh, you know, classical, uh, you know, educational models. Uh, they opened with 150 for their first year, didn't want to bite off too much. The next year, this year, they're in their, their this is going to be their second year. They're at 225. They've got 200 families waiting to get in. That is the one that's the, the fastest growing sector in the charter sector is the classical charter school. These are across the country. You're seeing more schools coming on and there seems to be a very large uh, demand for them uh, in, among parents. And, and what's interesting, because I when I see that type of demand, I obviously speak with my, you know, my district school, my more traditional public school leadership and say, you know, this is what your community is looking for, right? So how can you respond to this need in your community? Um, because we've got a lot of flexibility in our education rules here in the state of New Hampshire. I, I might argue that we have the best education rules in the, in the country, um, you know, that allow a lot of flexibility, even for our district schools to be able to, um, you know, offer some variety in terms of, uh, you know, what they're doing for their community schools. Well, how much opposition from the district schools are you finding to the growth of the charter schools in New Hampshire? Is it uh, intense as it is in some places such as Massachusetts? Or is it uh, like in Alaska, they seem to have pretty good relationships uh, between the two sectors? Yeah, for the most part, I would say that it is a good relationship. Um, and in, and I say that in a couple of different aspects. Um, you know, certainly uh, when a new charter school comes into a district, that particular LEA, they, they see it a little bit as a competitive, you know, option. Um, they view students who leave their traditional district school and go to the charter school as them losing revenue, like those little those little kids have revenue dollars on their heads that go with the, the student. And sometimes that can be, uh, you know, disturbing. But for the most part, we don't have the, the serious difficulty. But one of the things that I think is interesting, when I go to my secondary level, there, I think that the relationships tend to be quite good. And in fact, I have one of my charter schools, it's called the North Country Charter Academy. Uh, the charter organizers, they did come through the state process uh, so that it was not a district charter school, but the charter organizers were the superintendents of the schools in my North Country, a very rural area of the state, uh, difficult to operate in. And they had students that collectively, they recognized that they were not able to meet the needs of these students. High dropout rates. These are kids who needed a different uh, you know, method of pedagogy. So in the district school, they might've been disruptive. They may have been unengaged. They were at risk of dropout. So they actually, the superintendents themselves created a charter school for alternative students to be able to go to that charter school uh, to succeed. And uh, so there's a good example of, of a very strong relationship between the local districts, because the local districts are actually referring kids to the charter school saying, you know, we don't have, our, our instructional model is not gonna fit this kid. We need something different for this kid. And that particular charter school is a very flexible pedagogy model that allow, you know, we basically engage the students where they are and we create these individualized pathways for those students. Well, you know, one of the things that's happening since the COVID pandemic is that we're experiencing a lot more student absenteeism, more bullying at school, uh, signs of emotional distress. I just looked at the suicide rate that was broadcast in one of the major newspapers uh, the other day, and it's, it's way up, especially for, for males. 
And I'm wondering, are you experiencing this in New Hampshire as, as well as in other parts of the country? Um, I would say that all of our schools returning from, uh, you know, the pandemic disruption experienced a lot of dysregulation in the children uh, coming back into that learning environment. Um, you know, in some cases, uh, the dysregulation was, you know, a, a very simple thing in terms of, you know, students were just not used to the kind of the regulated structured environment, you know, they were a little bit more free range at that point in time, you know, for the kiddos. Um, other students, you know, suffered a great deal of stress and anxiety. Um, you know, I'm not sure that we as adults did such a great job protecting them from that with the uh, the way that we talked about uh, the pandemic and in, uh, in, in many different ways. Um, and so those stresses and anxieties have manifest themselves. But the one thing I think is really important to pay attention to is, you know, we had similar, and I, I just did a, a presentation on this this week, we had a similar mental health, anxiety, stress crisis on our hands before the pandemic, right? Like, so that was happening before we got to the pandemic and the pandemic accelerated and exacerbated that. But when somebody tells me that they want to go back to the pre-pandemic levels, uh, I say like, no, that was unacceptable then. We had a crisis of, you know, teen girls, suicide and suicidation on our hands in 2018. Um, and I don't want to return to that. What I want to do is understand the underlying problems that are driving those mental health dis dis uh, difficulties for these students and address those at a root cause rather than try to snap myself back to a system which we weren't that happy with to begin with. So what do schools need to do in order to respond to this new reality? Um, well, there's a couple of things that you can do. So just simply within the, and, and we've offered a variety of different types of programming for the schools in terms of being able to uh, you know, help with the classroom management, equip our educators, equip our students. Uh, we worked with a program called Regulated Classroom uh, in the state of New Hampshire, which was, uh, you know, help both regulate educators as well as teachers or as well as students. Because sometimes what was happening, you came back from the pandemic, the teachers themselves were had higher stress levels and those manifest themselves, which didn't de-escalate the conflicts, it escalated those conflicts. And so working that way, but truthfully, I think we're in a period of time and maybe even an inflection point um, where within education, we recognize that it is not working for too many students, just not getting the job done. Um, and so what we really need to do is to accelerate the opportunities through charter schools, through we have got in the state of New Hampshire education freedom accounts. Um, you know, we've got micro schools and, uh, you know, all these different options. And so we can find learning and, and, and learning environments that fit the children rather than try and fit the children to the learning environment. And I think as we create these various pathways and options, um, that is one way to turn down the volume in terms of the stress. I will lean in on a second way as well, which is, you know, just as a culture and as a society, um, and I'm speaking to somebody at Harvard University, right? Like, so we, we signal to everybody, if you don't come out of the Harvard institution, your life may not be as good as you think it should be. And there's a lot of pathways and a lot to happiness. And we need to make sure that we're communicating to students that, you know what, it, everybody shouldn't, there's not, a, there's not a, a model human, right? Like everybody's their own individual human. And what we have to do is we have to create education system that meets the humanity of those children and helps develop them into the best people that they can be. Well, one of the uh, curricular ideas that's very much on the agenda today is the science of reading. And uh, the science of reading really uh, strikes me as uh, going back to fundamentals of teaching people phonics and 
Of course, integrating that into a broader uh, learning environment, but nonetheless, uh, restoring some of the traditions of the past to uh, our approach to reading. And so I'm curious to know whether or not you have uh, introduced this kind of uh, uh, science of reading approach in New Hampshire. We do have that. In fact, we have uh, leaning into literacy. It's actually, I refer to it as kind of a three-legged uh, stool. Um, it has three different components to it. So. Uh, one of those components is training. And so we work with the science of reading um, and we have three programs. Um, we have a program for elementary educators to make sure that they are equipped with the science of reading tools to be able to be effective in teaching students. We have an administrator program because we want our teachers to be in, uh, you know, in buildings where the administration understands the importance of science and reading and supports those educators who are trying to teach that way. But then a, a third aspect, and I think this is unique in New Hampshire, is I offered a kind of a shortened down version of science of reading, and I offered it to all of my child care workers, all of, and, and quite frankly, anyone who works with kids. So we might have grandparents or parents, homeschool families. We've got boys and girls clubs and YMCAs, and we're training everybody. And that is the first leg of the school, the goal being to really to create a culture around the importance of literacy in our young people, because we know when they get those literacy, that helps them across the board in any of those other subjects. So that's leg number one of the stool. The next leg that we have in the stool is really a public campaign. Um, and that public campaign was you know, directed um, in social media ads, in you know, print ads that we directed. We had billboards, we had buses, you know, about uh, you know, the wonder of reading and the importance of uh, you know, that those literacy skills, I think the tagline associated with that, you know, a love of reading starts with one word. And then we had like the little simple words that people would get. But again, to try and create in the state of New Hampshire an entire culture around literacy uh, so that everybody recognizes that they have the ability to contribute. Like, like literacy doesn't isn't just limited to the four walls of the school, like everybody's in on this game. And then the third leg, which um, has been... Uh, you know, more, the, the most difficult to move forward is in our institutions of higher education and in our college, you know, our teacher preparation programs, um, you know, to make sure that our educators who are coming out into the system have been well prepared to be able to teach children how to read. And I think you may know better than I that, you know, even in, in the institutions of higher education, there's not been a full embrace of the science of reading, and there's still some work to do there. No, no. I, I, I What I'm amazed is that there is a rethinking of that in higher education. Re higher education doesn't rethink too many times. So uh, it is curious how this is actually causing some people to think, even in the university, that perhaps some of those approaches of the past weren't quite uh, what they were cracked up to be. Yeah, not, very, not as efficacious as we had hoped, right? That's that's true. Now, now speaking of efficacy, uh, as I understand it, New Hampshire is now exploring education savings accounts. Have you put those into place at this point? We do. Yep. So the the name for our accounts is the education freedom accounts. Um, is what we call them. So we are in the third year of our program. Um, we have about forty. It's limited to uh, individuals who are three hundred and fifty percent of the federal poverty level or below. Um, we've got about 4,200, um, you know, students enrolled in that program, um, and then those students are deployed across a variety of educational options uh, in the state. Um, but we are well on our way, um, you know, again, in our third year of the program. 
Well, do you have to be a public school student who opts out of the public schools to uh, participate in the uh, education freedom accounts? You do not. You only need to be eligible to be enrolled in the public school. So if you are an eligible student um, to attend your district school, then you are eligible for an education freedom account, assuming that you meet the income thresholds. What's the response? Is this a, a popular innovation? Um, it, we have... It is popular. We Basically, when we first developed the program, we tried to figure out, well, how many people are going to take advantage of this, right? And so we modeled it using Arizona's program, which was the most analogous to our program. And uh, the uptake rate in New Hampshire has exceeded that acceleration rate in Arizona. And again, so we now have 4,200 students that are participating in that program. You know, the first year we had about 1,600, the next year we had about 3,000, this year we had another 1,200 students at that program. Um, and we anticipate that it will continue uh, to grow at a, you know, at a modest pace. I, I think it's interesting because when you, when you talk about those programs, you know, you refer to whether there was tension with the public schools relative to charter schools, right? Um, but this is an area where you do find a, a, a much higher amount of tension um, that uh, the traditional district school um, it you know is not as comfortable with the education freedom accounts as uh, maybe we would want them to be, and it's a curious thing because sometimes we have some of our education freedom account students who are taking those funds and going to the neighboring district that they otherwise wouldn't qualify for, right? So they're showing up on at the at the district next door because they think they got a better education option over there and making that choice. Well, can you use your education freedom account to pay for enrollment in a, a neighborhood, in a neighboring school district? You can. You just the only place you can't use it is in your own district because then you're just enrolled in your own district. But if you take an education freedom account, you can take those funds. And um, you know, many of our schools have enrolled as education providers in our education, uh, you know, freedom account program. So they are providing either full time education or part time education. To students who uh, who want to do that, and the way that that can come about and really drives a bit of you know kind of an entrepreneurial uh, kind of approach here. You know, maybe you have in one district you got somebody who is just a, an excellent physics teacher, right? They just got it down, and uh, you know, so they can, in some respects, offer their opportunity, uh, you know, to other students. And so you maybe you'll have students who say like, "Hey, I'm going to take physics over here because we got this guy. He used to work at Google. He's a genius scientist." Uh, work for Elon Musk, I don't know, whatever it is, right? And you got kids coming, like, I want to go into this kid's, into this particular uh, educator's classroom. And so, you know, again, we're trying to say, like, it's not, uh, we're interested in kids being educated. We're not, real. we're less interested in where they get educated. Well, uh, but now a lot of the freedom account, or at least in Arizona, the education savings account, or whatever name they give it, uh, every yeah. state has their own name. Yeah, we have to have our own marketing, right. Uh, yeah. So uh, in Arizona, the issue is coming up. Well, what can you spend these monies for? And sometimes uh, people are quite creative in the way they would like to use this money. So do you put any guardrails on that to make sure the money is being used for an educational purpose? Yes, we have very um, strict guardrails. And in fact, when we put our law in place, we work very closely with the legislature. And so I don't have one of these issues where there's this vague law, like create an education freedom account, and then you get to do whatever you want as the Wild West. The law itself is very prescriptive and enumerates what is an allowable expense. Um, we use uh, you know, digital wallets and a reimbursement system so that nobody's able to spend them. Like, in other words, like, 
We're not spending that money out front unless it's a pre-approved type of an expense. And so, so far, we've not had those similar kinds of problems that other uh, states have, have suffered from. And, and I'm going to say something. I don't know if this is true or not, but my background as a certified public accountant at Price Waterhouse Coopers might be part of the reason why we've set up a good system of internal control around that, right? <laughs> yes. Well, that's the biggest thing is you got to have accountability, especially yeah, when internal control. Like that just has to happen. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, no, that's, and, then, that's I mean, and quite frankly, we, in addition to building a system with good controls, we also have a, a strong monitoring program in terms of making sure we're going back through there and, and doing some auditing and checking to make sure that we are meeting the objectives of the law. Well, Commissioner, I know you're very busy, so I don't want to uh, keep you any longer, but I do want to return to our first topic, uh, charter schools, because so we have a very high performing group of charter schools in New Hampshire. How quickly are you going to build out to uh, to have still more charter schools to provide options for students in, in your state? So we are continuing to um, offer grants. Uh, we have grants up to $1.5 million for individuals wanting to start schools. So we're actively working with, you know, individuals and communities across the state uh, to, to evaluate and look at it. Um, we are pretty careful in terms of just making sure, like, it's a lot of work. Right? This is not the kind of thing that you take on lightly. So we're making sure that we've got good governance. We've got people who understand what they're stepping into. Um, and because I'll summarize it this way is, you know, somebody comes to the State Board of Education and they get approved and they say like, well, now we did it. I'm like, no, no, that's the beginning point. Now you have to educate the children because that's the hard work. Right. And uh, so we are continuing to expand that out. And again, we've got uh, you know, a grant program uh, that allows schools to get started up. And we always have a, a portfolio of schools that are in the process of, of getting set up and, and going. Well, thank you, Commissioner Edelblut, uh, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Great. Thank you so much, Paul. It's a pleasure to meet you. I have been speaking with Frank Edelblut, the Commissioner of Education for the state of New Hampshire. This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every week on Mondays at noon Eastern time.